0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 14 here in Luke 22, and we're going to discuss events at the Lord's Supper. Now, Luke does not record the events in the Lord's Supper chronologically, and so I'm going to deviate from my normal practice of going verse by verse, and I'm going to take up the events chronologically at the Lord's Supper, as according to A.T. Robertson. And so we will begin with Jesus's rebuke to the apostles for being proud and trying to jostle for high places in the kingdom. And that is discussed in verses 14 through 16 to Luke 22. And then we're going to have to drop down way down to verse 24 and go on down through 24 through verse 30 to finish that topic. So this is the discussion of Jesus at the Lord's Supper talking about leadership in the kingdom, about being great in the kingdom and about being least in the kingdom. Now, we're going to skip over another event in the Lord's Supper. That's the Jesus' washing of the feet, as recorded in John. But it fits, that story fits in with the idea of, listen, guys, you're going to be leaders in the kingdom. You need to be humble and not worry about the way the Gentiles are, who rule with lordship and authority. Now, last audio... In chapter 21, finished up with all the events of the the Olivet Discourse on Tuesday afternoon of Passion Week, Jesus had given several parables, the parable of the porter, the parable of the master of the house, the parable of the faithful servant, the parable of the evil servant, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the sheep and goats. All of these parables were designed to show that he was going to be gone for a while, a long time, and he needed to watch and and keep on being obedient and keep on spreading the kingdom. That's kind of the context here. He's given that instruction, and now he's getting ready to die because this is Thursday night. He's killed the next day, next day on Friday. So we start with verse 14 of Luke 22, and we'll read through verse 16. When the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, "I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God." Now, as I mentioned earlier. Luke does not record the events of the Last Supper in chronological order. This is according to A. T. Robinson. Also, the NIV Study Bible says the same thing. The first thing that's mentioned, but it's actually the second in time, is the sharing of the bread and the cup, but which, of course, is the most important part of the occasion. However, the the second thing that's mentioned, but the first thing that happened in time, was Jesus's comments about Judas and the argument about who would be the greatest. So we're taking up that first event. First, even though it's second mentioned, we're going out of order in Luke. Now, Jesus, this is the last Passover and the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper. So the, the meal partakes of the characteristics of both. Jesus is, is actually referred to as the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5 7 Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. You are indeed unleavened, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. So Jesus is our Passover lamb. So the, the symbolism of the Old Testament Passover has been completely fulfilled right here in the Lord's Supper. He was there as the Passover lamb, just as in the Old Testament Passover meals the lamb was present. Now Jesus said, I will not eat this meal again with you until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now the question is, is when is this meal fulfilled in the kingdom of God? And, and that's another way of saying It's when did the kingdom of God arrive? Now you know... That the kingdom of God is already and not yet, and so that means it's here in its inception when Jesus came, and it's here in its consummation at the very end of time, and so you can pick any point along that temporal timeline and say that the kingdom of God is here. So when is it fulfilled? It could be anywhere between 80, 30 at Pentecost to the end of the world. Now, most people take this saying that Jesus will not eat the meal again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. They take it at the very end because that's when Jesus will physically be back. I will submit to you that that has got a lot of problems to it, a lot of problems that people don't look at. They just assume it without thinking about it. I prefer the view that the Lord's Supper is fulfilled in the kingdom of God after Pentecost and that Jesus ate it spiritually with them. He was there. Now, before I go into my view of that, let me point out to you a typical interpretation of how Jesus fulfills the Lord's Supper at the end of time. People will turn to Revelation 19, which is the famous wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, first of all, and they say that, that when that meal is eaten, we eat at the wedding banquet. That That's the same thing as eating that meal again, the Lord's Supper. Well, first of all, Revelation nineteen is a wedding banquet, not the Lord's Supper, not the Passover. It never says it is. That's just an assumption that people make. Point number two is when is a wedding feast held? Is it held two thousand years after the wedding? When was the wedding? Jesus married his church in AD thirty, and ladies and gentlemen, when the Holy Spirit fell, Pentecost came, the church was there, Jesus was the bride, and we were the, Jesus was the bridegroom and we were the bride. And we gotta wait two thousand years before we get to eat at the reception? I don't think so. In addition, from my point of view, since I'm an orthodox Preterist, if you say that the wedding supper of the Lamb is the is the Lord's supper, the Lord's supper is the wedding supper of the Lamb, and you put Revelation 19 way off into the future, the way that people want to do when they fulfill this verse far off in the future, then you wreck the Preterist scheme of Revelation 19. So. How do we deal with that? Well, how can I defend my view that Jesus ate spiritually with the church in the kingdom of God where we are now, starting in 8030? 30? Well first of all, is not Jesus with us? If you hold a Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper, which I do, the, the spiritual, real presence of the Lord, that Jesus is with us spiritually when the Lord's Supper is eaten, he's with us spiritually. Well, I mean, everybody believes, well not everybody, let's, let's put it this way. The Lutherans believe he's actually physically present r- with us con- with their constantiation view. The Catholics think he's physically present with the transubstantiation view. And the Calvinists think he is spiritually present with their spiritual real presence view. That means Jesus is there eating with us, is he not? So the, the idea that Jesus is eating with us spiritually is not as far-fetched as it sounds. And not only that, we have a an example of God eating with the elders of Israel and you know God can't doesn't have a body and he cannot physically munch on food let's read that in verse Exodus chapter 24 verse 11 actually it's verses 9 through 11 of Exodus 24 Then Moses went up, that's went up on Mount Sinai, with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Verse 11, yet he did not stretch out his hand, that's he, God, did not stretch out his, God's hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel, and they saw God, and they ate and drank. God was there, because they saw God, and then all the elders ate and drank, so God's with them as they ate and drank, so that's... Not ludicrous to say that Jesus eats with us at the Lord's Supper. And that's what he meant when he said, I will not eat it again with you until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And let me mention one more problem with the physical view of Jesus eating physically the Lord's Supper. At the end of the world, there are going to be billions of Christians in the kingdom. And we know this is theologically accurate and sound here is that Jesus still has a body. So he he physically has a body in heaven. So how how is he going to physically eat with a billion Christians all at the same time? I never have figured that one out. So returning to verse 16 of Luke 22, where we are. Jesus says, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Remember what Jesus said, the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is among you. I know no defeat, only victory. The kingdom of God is here. All right let's pick up a few other details from this passage here. They reclined at the table. Remember the original Passover was not eating in a recline, eaten at a, in a reclining position. They were standing. This is according to John Gittle and my NIV study Bible. Exodus 12:11 says this: "Here's how you must eat it. Eat the Passover. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover." Now, that verse doesn't say that they stood directly, but you can infer it because it says that your sandals are on your feet. Nobody ate reclined at table with their sandals on their feet, the dirty, nasty sandals. They left those at the door. They didn't, they ate barefooted. So that just goes to show that not all the details of the Passover are carried forth into the Lord's Supper. We should never, ever say that. Now, it says he ate with his apostles in verse 14. We need to remember that Judas was still there. Why did he go there? Well, he wanted to scope out where they were eating so he could betray Jesus later on and it would avoid suspicion if he was there too. Maybe he was trying to cover up his sin so they could say, well, you know, I'm betraying him, but at least I ate the Lord's Supper with him. Who knows why, but he was there. All right, now let's drop down from Luke 22, verse 16, and we'll drop all the way down to 24, and we'll continue to talk about this idea of who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Verse 24. Then a dispute also arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. Now, what might have caused this? Well, Jesus has just mentioned that he was going to eat the Lord's supper again with them in the kingdom of God. Ah, that probably rang a bell with them. The kingdom of God—that's the glorious messianic political kingdom where we're going to be the big shots and ruling the world. And so they started thinking about, well, you know, where am I going to be in this big, powerful, wealthy earthly kingdom? So that could have what. Got, got them on this topic of who's going to be the, the, the greatest it could have been that only two disciples had been sent to prepare the passover meal as we learned in previous audio and the rest of the disciples were thinking well with this favoritism here there's hierarchy in the in the team there's leaders in the team and two disciples have more authority than we do jesus favored them that could have been it it could have been that Jesus earlier had said the church would be built upon Peter's confession, Matthew 16:18, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the forces of Hades will not overpower it. And people was might the other disciples might have started to think, well, Peter, you're just too big for your britches. Now we need to not confuse this with an earlier earlier similar dispute. This is in Luke 9:46. Then an argument started among them about who would be the greatest of them. Remember, this is when James and John, the son of Zebedee, started. And and their mother said, Jesus, how about put my sons, James and John, one on your left and one on your right, that kind of thing. No, that's not what we're talking about here. But you can see the same ideas floating through their heads. They couldn't get that idea out of their heads. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And I would make an application here. How many preachers do you know that all they think about is advancement? How many people are in their church? How many millions of dollars is in their budget? How many people they got saved last week, etc. Oh, it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. You know, and that's why Jesus, I'm sure, mentioned it so much about the foot washing and about being humble, as we'll see on later. See later, to, to lead like the youngest, to lead like a slave. Why did he emphasize that so much? Because he knew human nature, and I'm telling you, there's a lot of human nature in the leadership of the evangelical church in America, and if you ever get around one of these hotshot preachers that thinks he knows everything and thinks he's going to tell you what to do, what's good for your spiritual good, and who you're going to marry, and you know there's different degrees of this sort of nonsense, I just have a, a simple, free word of advice. Run like Gehenna, and let the man stew in the judgment that he's bringing on his head for being arrogant and a dictator. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with leadership. We've got to have leadership. Uh, leadership is anarchy. I'm talking about humble leadership, servant leadership. That's the kind we, we need. Now, it could be that uh, the, the dispute about who was the greatest was only among the three greatest <laughs> Peter, James, and John, who, of course, were singled out by Jesus on many occasions for special favor, if you will, in ministering with Jesus. And it could have been Peter was the one who started the whole thing because Jesus takes time to specifically rebuke Peter in verse 31 of Luke 22 when he says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. That, of course, had to do with his, his uh, well, I don't know exactly what the occasion with that was. Because that if he said, I'll never, I'm not sure whether this was at the time where he said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. But right after he starts talking about being humble and leading like children and slaves, he picks on Peter. So it sounds like Peter might have had a little bit of idea that he was going to be the big shot, the first pope, the first pope who was married and had a mother-in-law. All right, so let's go to verse 25, 26, and 27 of Luke 22. But he, Jesus, said to them, the apostles, whoever they were, the kings of the Gentiles dominate them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Now, see, in that interesting... The dominators, they call themselves benefactors. Now, there's some examples of this in history. The Ptolemies in Egypt had a series of kings called Eurigetes, which means benefactor. Ptolemy, benefactor the first, and Ptolemy, benefactor the second. (laughs) We're from the IRS, and we're here to help you. The kings of the Gentiles dominate them. Now, of course, I've just been reading some Thomas Aquinas, and he was talking about how governments are ordained by God and that Man is a social animal. He needs governments, and governments help man reach his highest end uh, on this earth, not in heaven, of course, but on this earth. And the governments allow them to live a peaceful life. The governments allow people to get their living and so forth, and all this wonderful stuff about states. And actually, I agree with that. That's true. A good government does do all that, and it's necessary. But how many governments do you know that dominate? There are people that, as Jesus said, the kings of the Gentiles dominate them. Think about Venezuela now. Think about Mao Xi Zedong Ping, or I should say, Xi Jinping Mao Zedong Ping, the current dictator in China who is putting facial recognition cameras everywhere so he can keep track with his 1.6 billion Chinese, so he can dominate them and tell them whether they can get a passport or not, whether they can get get their kids into college or not. If they confess Jesus, well, we're not going to give you a passport. We're not going to let you go to college. We're going to shut your church down. I could go on. But how about in the French Revolution? How about in the Bolshevik Revolution? How about in the killing fields of Cambodia? How about in North Vietnam? How about in any communist country? How about in East Germany? How about in... National Socialist Germany and during the time of the Nazis. I could go on example after example. How about in the Egyptian kingdoms when all those slaves built those pyramids? How about in the early Chinese imperial times when all those slaves built the Great Wall? I could go on and on and on and talk about unjust governments that dominate their people, and they're called benefactors. So that's what Jesus is using as as a negative example. That's what we're not supposed to be like as leaders in the kingdom of God. Verse 26, but it must not be like that among you. It must not be like that among you, among you apostles, among you apostles who are leading my kingdom. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you must become like the youngest. Who's the youngest in a family? The little baby? The little child? He's got the least authority in the family. So this is, we're talking about leadership without authority, leadership by example. And whoever leads like the one serving, that means a slave, a servant, or, and back then, in those times, it was a slave. How much authority does a slave have in the household? Absolutely none. And that's how much authority church leaders should have. And yet we give them all kind of authority, both physical and spiritual. If you don't listen to me, God's not going to be happy with you. No, we're not supposed to do that. I'm the pastor, and that's the way it's going to be. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? The one at the table is greater. Isn't it the one at the table, Jesus says, but I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus says, look, even I am not at the table. I'm serving. I'm a servant. I put myself in. I'm the suffering servant. I'm the suffering slave. This is my example. I'm teaching you how to lead. And so that's how we're supposed to lead in the kingdom of God, is to care for the people we lead and do everything we can to help them. Easier said than done. These names, these benefactors, of course, it's the most ironic name. You know, we're from the IRS and we're here to help you. We're from the government and we're here to help you. The irony is that they, they use that fancy positive term to cover up the, the leader's ambition, cruelty, and tyranny. That's what's so ironic about it. Now Jesus says, "I'm is the one who serves." He, we, we're not going to go over it here, but in John, when we get to John, we'll see how he served them by washing their feet, which was the job of a slave. Jesus took the the position of a slave to serve his fellow Christians. That's what we're supposed to do. This is the last thing he taught, as he's getting ready to be crucified. He says, "Now he says it's just like being the youngest in a family or a slave in the household. That's how it should be," and yet. How many pompous ecclesiastical titles do Christians dish out to one another? The right reverend Jeremy, whatever his name was. I, I, I refused to call anybody. I remember there was this Episcopal priest. I'll never forget this. He, he kept on dropping his name, Father David. He was half my age. He was 30-something years old. He wanted me to call him Father. And I called him. I said, David, it's nice to meet you, David. Can we come over and eat with you, David? And he said, uh... Yes, my parishioners, uh, they said to me, Father David. I said, great, David, Uh, glad to know your acquaintance. I'm not going to call anybody pastor. I'm not going to call anybody reverend. Why? Because Jesus said, don't do it. Let me give you a quote from, before I quote Jesus, let me give you a quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Of how little avail has this condemnation of, quote, unquote, lordship, and vain titles bend against the vanity of Christian ecclesiastics. Hear, hear, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Matthew 23, 8 through 10. Je- this is what Jesus said as he's casting his his seven woes, I think it was seven woes or eight woes on the rabbinic kingdom that, was about to be, that he was about to denounce in the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 23, 8 through 10, he says this, But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, that's God, You can call God rabbi, but don't call any human rabbi. And you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father. Father David, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father. That's God our father. He who is in heaven. Verse 11. Do not be called leaders. Pastor Joe, Pastor Dan, Pastor Sam. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. I don't know how in the world people think that, I believe in the Bible, I believe the inspired and errant Word of God, and yet when it comes to one of the most plain, straightforward, non-controversial, how do you explain this type of verse away? People just ignore it and don't care. They they do not care. Matthew 22 verses 28 through 30, Jesus continues speaking to his apostles, you are the ones who stood by me in my trials. Well, let's stop right there. What trials did Jesus have? Well, he had hardships. Luke 9:58. Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus didn't have a home. He wandered around and lived out in the open and, or at the mercy of other people's hospitality for his whole ministry. Jesus didn't have anywhere of his own to lay his head, but his apostles stayed with him anyway. He was rejected, Jesus was. John 1, 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But the disciples received him. They stayed with him, despite all the opposition from the Jewish people. Now, they weren't, the disciples weren't with Jesus with his temptations in the desert because they, they hadn't been chosen yet. But basically, in G- Jesus' trials during his ministries, ministry, they stood with him. They had a lot of problems. They got a little conceited sometimes. They had a little lack of faith. You know, they had their problems. They were human beings. But Jesus trained them. He trained them well. Verse 29, i bestow on you a kingdom. There's that kingdom again. When did the kingdom come? I believe it came right when he told him to wait for him at Pentecost. That's when the kingdom got started. You could even say it was earlier than that because well, Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you when he was even before Pentecost, even before this, during his ministry. Because he was referring to himself, I'm sure. doesn't really matter to me. The fact is the kingdom is being bestowed on these apostles, just as my father bestowed one on me. So... God gave the kingdom to Jesus, and Jesus gave the kingdom to his apostles, and the apostles gave the kingdom to us, and we are all members of the kingdom of God. Verse 30, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. We've already talked about the apostles eating and eating and drinking at my table in my kingdom. I've explained to you why I believe that is referring to all the apostles eating during communion at any time during the, during the church age. Now, of course, he's specifically referring to the apostles, not just the ordinary Christian here, Christians here. But I believe the kingdom was already established when the apostles had the kingdom bestowed on them. And so they ate and drank, drank at Jesus' table in the kingdom then that was getting, just getting ready to get established. Not 2,000 plus years later in the, at, the, at the end of the age. Eating and drinking, of course, is the, is the typical symbol of fellowship now. You will sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Thrones refers to power and authority. He just finished telling them that they didn't have any authority. You have the authority of children and slaves, and yet then he says you will sit on thrones. That is not a contradiction, folks. The way that you lead and have power and authority in the kingdom of God is by example. People, because you serve them and because you love them, then they will serve you, and they will recognize your authority, and they will put you on the throne, but you don't care because you are a servant, you're a slave. It looks like a paradox, does it not? But it's not. And it says you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, this brings in a little bit of theology, because people say, see there, that's talking about the apostles' way at the end of time of the 12 tribes of Israel. That means Israel is going to be reestablished as a kingdom, and therefore we're all dispensationalists now. No, the 12 tribes of Israel is a metaphor that stands for the people of God, i.e. the church. The covenants have flipped And, of course, we can't get into all our anti-dispensational diatribe here, but we can quote Hebrews 8.8, which says, But finding fault with his people, he, God, says, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with whom? With the church? No. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The new covenant is made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So when Jesus tells his apostles... That you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, what he's talking about is, I'm going to put you in charge of the new covenant over the church. Because, and think about it, the apostles don't know anything about the new covenant yet. All that stuff's not been revealed to them yet. This is a a last minute teaching at the Lord's Supper. So Jesus used terminology that they'd be familiar with. They understood the 12 tribes of Israel, and they understood the, the idea of thrones, and they were going to be leading the people of God. It took them a while to realize that it was the new covenant, not the old covenant. You know they had to go through the they had to go through the idea of Gentiles getting baptized in the Holy Spirit in Acts ten and getting saved and all that because the Gentiles my gosh you know you know you mean the twelve tribes of Israel includes Gentiles yeah it took them a while but they finally figured it out and they hadn't figured it out here so Jesus uses Old Testament terminology but what he's referring to is that the the apostles who are sitting on the thrones they're going to be in charge of the church they're the foundation of the church I love that metaphor in Revelation remember the twelve foundation stones of the church. This saying of Jesus here reminds us of another time he said the same thing in a, in a different time. In Matthew 19:28, Jesus said to them, I assure you in the Messianic age, this is Holman Christian Study Bible Translation, I assure you in the Messianic age when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, the interesting thing about, I use the, the Holman Christian Study Bible translation there because they translate it as the Messianic Age. They interpret the Greek word as referring to the Messianic Age, which, of course, starts with Jesus, which fits in with my interpretation pretty good. It, it's, it, when I say it starts with Jesus, it starts with Jesus back in the times of Pentecost, back in the times of the apostles, not starting with Jesus at the end of the world. Now, other translations have, I assure you that in the renewal of all things, you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. King James has in the regeneration, you'll sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And the ESV says in the new world, you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. That reflects the ESV's futuristic bias pretty well, I would say. The Greek word is palingenesia. Excuse me, palingenesia. Palingenesia. Palin is again, Genesia's birth, in the new birth. So the word is a little bit ambiguous and that's why you come up with all these translations. But the Holman Christian Study Bible, in my opinion, has got it right in the Messianic age when Jesus starts his church. And one reason why I think that Jesus has already started his church and he's already ruling ruin, and, and he says that you're going to sit with me. Well, when did Jesus sit? Well, Jesus sat already in eight one. Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down, S-A-T, sat, past tense, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. When he ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God. The Father, the place in the right hand, of course, is the place of power and authority. He's already there. And so we're going to say all the other thrones, the other 12 thrones are going to be empty until the end of the age. I don't think so. I think the apostles sat down there right then. All right, we'll finish this with an observation that Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown makes. Jesus is about to bestow a kingdom, and yet he's about to be killed, crucified as a criminal. And yet, he was so magnificent that he was able to bestow a kingdom. No wonder those disciples followed him to the death and got so many people converted against all odds, against all explanation. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with that first incident in Luke chapter 22. We'll go back in the next audio and pick up the incident where Jesus points out Judas as his betrayer. We'll see you next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.